Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Brenda Astorino guest hosts today's Spirit in Action, sharing a 2014 speech in Seattle, Washington, by John Deere, former Jesuit priest, nonviolence activist, and teacher, and author of 35 plus books. John Deere's life and choices brought him to leave his Jesuit life as he practices a path that follows his religious belief and his love for humanity. You'll hear of his experiences with many spiritual souls, including the Dalai Lama, MLK Jr., Nelson Mandela, and many others. John Deere defines nonviolence in a way that speaks to our hearts and our heads. With humor and his experience in our country and around the world, he teaches us and enthralls us with a larger scope and broader context for living. Brenda's program, Pathways with Brenda Astorino, originates on KLOILP of Lopez Island, Washington, where I was able to meet Brenda in person in the course of my travels just a couple weeks ago. I'll turn it over to you, Brenda. Take it away. Hello, Mark. I'm grateful for this chance to introduce the Spirit in Action audience to Father John Deere speaking to nonviolent action. Here's Lorraine Hartman introducing John Deere. We're honored by the presence of Father John, internationally known prophetic voice for peace and nonviolence, nominated by Archbishop Desmond Tutu for the Nobel Peace Prize. John is author, editor of 30 books, including his autobiography, A Persistent Peace, and his most recent and a focus of tonight's talk, The Nonviolent Life. And he joined the staff of Pace Ebene Nonviolent Service in 2013. He's also written hundreds and hundreds of articles. John's commitment to gospel nonviolence is uncompromising. He is action-oriented, accepting the consequences. He attracts fellow prophetic voices here tonight, people like biblical scholar Wes Howard Brook, an opponent of Iraq sanctions and war Bert Sachs, pastors like Father Timothy Clark and Reverend Rich Lang, Pax Christi members who have professed the vow of nonviolence, which John co-authored in the 1980s, members of the Seattle chapter of Fellowship of Reconciliation. John was the national director of FOUR, which is the largest U.S. interfaith peace organization. People working toward the abolition of nuclear weapons, like those present from Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action, next to the Bangor Naval Station, home base of a good chunk of the U.S. Trident subfleet and well over a thousand nuclear weapons. He has spent months of his life in prison for opposing nuclear weapons and has been arrested over 75 times for his peace work. John's guides are people like Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, Therese of Lisieux, St. Francis, 
and friends he has known or knows in the flesh, like Mother Teresa, Cesar Chavez, Desmond Tutu, Dom Helder Camara, Thich Nhat Hanh, Mayred McGuire, Dan and Phil Berrigan, Joan Baez, Martin Sheehan. His meticulous discipline toward intimacy with Jesus shines through, as does his conviction that Jesus sent from God is nonviolent and that we, God's beloved children, thus should be nonviolent. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for coming out and being here tonight. And it's wonderful to be back in Seattle. I don't feel a bit sorry for you living in Seattle. <laughs> so wonderful. I just flew in from New Mexico, and there's no water and nothing green. It's really exciting to be here. A big thank you to Rich, University Temple, United Methodist Church, and Father Tim and Miriam, uh, Lady of the Lake, and most especially, Lorraine and the committee for bringing me in. And it's so nice to see so many friends and to hear about all the great things you're doing with, oh, Pax Christi and Ground Zero and FOR and all these various troublemaking groups. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, every one of you, for everything you're doing for justice and peace and for the God of justice and peace and our poor churches and poor Jesus in the poor world, and I just want to encourage you to keep at it. I'm just back from South Africa, in the middle of all the troubles I've got going on in my life. You know, it's a lifelong dream to go there. Many of you probably worked to oppose apartheid, and I don't know that I, maybe like you could have gotten in earlier. I went with my friend Father Ray, and we went everywhere and met everybody. Johannesburg and Soweto, and went to the churches that had been the sister parishes that I worked at from Washington, D.C., inner city, D.C., in the 1980s, and uh, to go to those places and meet people and uh, visit Winnie Mandela, whom I had corresponded with in the 80s, and she remembered me. It was just thrilling. And then we went to Peter Maritzburg. Now, how many of you know you're a Gandhi? You remember the beginning of the Gandhi movie? He gets thrown off the train because he's sitting in the first class and it's midnight and he's dropped in the middle of nowhere in South Africa. He's only been there for a week and he's a dopey 21-year-old kid. And he's left in the waiting room of the Peter Maritzburg train station in 1893. And he's really scary and it's cold and he sits on the floor till 9 a.m. and he knows this is it. What am I going to do about this injustice? And he stands up and he wrote in his autobiography, my act of nonviolence began that day. We went to the train station. I know it's a little over the top, but it's the same train station since 1893. The goofy old orange brick Victorian building, the same tiled roof, the same waiting room. And we prayed there. It was so powerful that we could have a portion of Gandhi's spirit, all of us, to stand up and give our lives fighting injustice like he did. Then we went to Durban to go to the ashram that Gandhi built, which is still there. And he lived there for 20 years where he began the movement. And then we went down to Port Elizabeth to visit the home of Steve Biko, who was a personal, real hero for me. And I think at the heart of South Africa, in many ways more than Mandela, 
for what he did, his vision of black consciousness, of being a human being, went to the house where he was banned and then prayed to this grave. And we made our way to Cape Town to Robin Island and spent a day there and praying in Mandela's cell. And then uh, I spent a day with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of archbishops who don't like me. I'm just saying. I don't know why. There's a lot of archbishops who don't welcome me. He catered a meal for me and brought all his friends in. It was I felt like the prodigal son. We had a Eucharist together. And he says to me, which I say to you, we can never give up working for justice and peace, John. He said, looking at me, never. We have to work at this till the day we die because our sisters and brothers are dying around the world. That's a solemn message I share with you. He's 82. He's been under death threat practically every day since he was 13. I don't know well, how well you know his story. And he was, he's been ill. And he was leaving for Iran the next day, which is no joke. He's causing so much trouble in South Africa at the moment, speaking out against the corruption in the ANC and so forth. So powerful. And if you, if some of you know me in, you know, that's why he's on to me long ago. I'm going, oh, come on, Archbishop. Give me a break. How do you do it? And he looks me in the eye and he goes, I weep. I cry. I cry every single day about what's happening to our sisters and brothers. And I laugh. I laugh every single day. And I read the prophet Jeremiah and he weeps and he laughs and he goes and confronts the empire. And that's what I want to do. I'm sharing that teaching with you. Isn't that great? He's not a raging, angry man, nor is he afraid, nor is he despairing, nor is he depressed. He's grieving and he's joyful and he's going forward. Are there any questions? (laughs) No, it's it's such a helpful thing. Friends, we are not powerless. We have a power to change ourselves and Seattle and our country and the world if we dare live up to it. The way of God, which is the methodology of nonviolence, which Gandhi and Dr. King have proved, and all our, we're working on to with Archbishop Tutu and so many others. I encourage you, don't give up. Don't be depressed and don't despair. Don't be afraid and don't sit back and do nothing. Just because things are so hard. We've got a way forward and we've got to try. And that's what I'd like to reflect with you a little bit. Maybe share a story or two and a little bit about violence and nonviolence. And, you know, I've been talking about my new book, The Nonviolent Life. I'm still, <laughs> I know I'm stuck on a, a message, but I think Gandhi and King are right. That nonviolence is the only hope for the world. And I've been trying with you to reflect on what that means. Maybe say a word about Jesus, and then we have time for question and answers, Rich, and then we will resolve everything. <laughs> How does that sound as a plan? Yeah, yeah. Really, my change happened when I was uh, 21 and decided to go on a hitchhiking pilgrimage through Israel and had left the week Israel invaded Lebanon. 
and all the Holy Land tours were canceled. The Summer War of 1982, you maybe remember that, Rich, it was called Operation Peace for Galilee, was orchestrated at the Pentagon. We killed 60,000 people. And I hitchhiked through Israel, completely oblivious to everything, and spent a week camping out illegally at the Sea of Galilee, which was so beautiful and so exciting. There was nobody there, 1982. And uh, I was really reading the Sermon on the Mount for the first time and visiting the chapel of the Beatitudes. And it still shakes me. You know, I walked into that church, maybe you've been there, on the North Shore, that little hill, that little church. And I always say it was like graffiti as far as I was concerned written on the walls of the church. Can you imagine they did this? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Doesn't sound good. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, the nonviolent. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. (laughs) Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those persecuted working for justice on the altar, love your enemies, and not being very bright, I thought to myself, oh my God, I think this guy's serious. <laughs> and it was, you know, standing on the balcony, grappling with these texts, that I saw these jets swoop down from the sky, breaking the sound barrier, setting off all these sonic booms, flying over me in the Chapel of the Beatitudes and dropping bombs. And it changed my life. I got to see war at the Sea of Galilee, at the place where Jesus did, blessed are the peacemaker, and love your enemies. And like you, I decided, right, I'm going to try to get with the program. And I don't know how to do it, but with you, I'm on the journey. And that's what I find helpful, that living the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and the way of nonviolence and peace, love, and compassion is a journey. And we're on it together toward a whole new world of peace. Where are you on the road to peace? When did your journey start? How have you been a victim of the culture of war through your life in a crazy country? And how have you turned and tried to become a person of nonviolence and peace? And as you look at the rest of your life, as I'm reflecting, I invite you to reflect on your own journey with the short time we have left on earth. How can we go deeper into the life of nonviolence, the journey of peace? These are great questions. Uh, that led me, you know, to sit at the feet of Daniel and Philip Barrican, my friends and teachers. And it, it's just like a matter of days, I always say. If you're going to be with the Barricans before you have to go and get arrested. <laughs> Phil was like, go get arrested, the Pentagon kid, and report back to me. <laughs> it was the way it was. And Dan... I I was asking Dan the meaning of life. I was so nervous, 1982. Dan, Dan, what's the point of all this again? That's what I blurted out. And he said, oh, so helpful. All you have to do is make your story fit into the story of Jesus. And at first I thought, oh, that's so wonderful. I thought, oh, my God. You know, he could have said, go and end all wars and nuclear weapons. This is so much better, but maybe even harder. That led me to El Salvador to work with the Jesuits at the university who sent me out to a refugee camp where the U.S. was bombing the area and to greet the death squads when they came in and to have known these great Jesuits, six of them who were later assassinated, changed my life. And that led me to walk onto the Seymour Johnson Air Force Base with Philip Berrigan in 1993, you know, by 
Now you've heard I have a long, let's just say I have a problem with recidivism. Uh, and like Bill and Steve Kelly and so many good friends here in Seattle, we walked right up to one of the F-15 nuclear fighter bombers, took out a hammer, and I went up to the side of it and hammered once on it like that. Didn't even chip the paint, but... As I said to the judge later, Your Honor, I'm just doing what it says in the Bible. Someday you know the Holy Prophet, Your Honor. Someday, you know, he said, Someday these people are going to come along and they're going to beat their swords into plowshares and study war no more. And Jesus gave us that famous commandment, Your Honor. Love your enemies, don't nuke them. That's the actual translation from the original Greek. And it didn't go over well with the judge either. I don't know. I'm trying to be humorous about all of this because it's the only way to keep yourself going. What an experience, friends. Really powerful. And uh, we were thrown on the ground. We had 25 soldiers with machine guns at our heads. We joined hands. There were four of us. We prayed. And then there were 50 soldiers. And then there were 100 soldiers. And then there were 200 soldiers. And then there were 500 soldiers. And then there were 1,000 soldiers. And we had walked into and shut down the whole annual U.S. national war games, 10,000 soldiers, and the top 10 generals were all fired. How did these people get right into the center of it? Ours was the 50th of about 90 plowshares actions now. And we were put in jail for Phil and I for about nine months, and Bruce and Lynn, little cell, we never left it. Never. Never went outdoors, never exercised, nothing. It was horrible. Really, really, really terrible. But we took the gospel and started the reading the gospel of Mark. And then, one, you know, we took a little piece of Wonder Bread, which we were served for breakfast. And on Mondays, we had those little plastic cups with the grape juice, which I always joke, we found if you hit it in the top of the toilet, it ferments quite nicely. <laughs> and it was like Jesus was right there with us. I'm just sharing with you my journey. It was so powerful. And I always think there's an inverse proportionality. The more that I try to do, I'm going to change the world and end war, and I'm doing it, the less happens. The more you let go, and your life is over, and you've been destroyed, crushed by the culture, and you walk forward into the darkness, now God can do something. The more happens. Daniel Berrigan always taught me, you only get enough light for the next step. That means one step. Not the day, not the next week, not the next year. But the trick is to keep taking next steps in the dark, in faith. Oh, there's so many stories to share. My trip to Iraq, my work at September 11th at Ground Zero. as the coordinator for the Red Cross and chaplains working with the relatives who lost loved ones and our, our demonstrations against the war in Afghanistan, getting kicked out of New York and moving to New Mexico, the poorest state in the country, number one in everything, including military spending, number one in nuclear weapons. I was telling Mike from the radio show today, we think there's 2,500 nuclear weapons at the Albuquerque airport. Um, and it's number one in drunk driving, child hunger, suicide, domestic violence, alcoholism. The section in northern New Mexico hands down the worst place in the United States, more murders than anywhere else, the center of all drugs. And right at the mountain, 
is Los Alamos, birthplace of the bomb, where business is booming, where Obama is still trying to build this state-of-the-art plutonium bomb factory. He's done more for nuclear weapons than anybody since Reagan in 1983. We have our annual peace vigil there, and we put on sackcloth and sit in ashes and take over the whole town of Los Alamos every year in Hiroshima Day. Taking up the story of Jin Jonah in the town of Nineveh from the Bible. To repent of the mortal sin of war and nuclear weapons. And beg the God of peace for the gift of nuclear disarmament. To try to take our work for peace public without judging and condemning, pointing fingers. Because we, we're all in the same boat together. And say, we, we, we're, this is not working. We need, and we're, we're so poor and bankrupting and poisoning ourselves and they're not making us safe. And so we're in the throes of that now. That hasn't gone over very well, but you do what you can. Um, and, you know, so I come from that. You know, where I, I stay in New Mexico, I look out at Los Alamos. And we have, you know, our other friends here tonight can tell you much more detail. Some 15 to 20,000 nuclear weapons still on the planet. But there's 25 wars happening with the U.S. selling weapons to both sides. But there's 4 billion people in a subhuman extreme poverty. The U.N. says a billion people are starving to death. But we're in the throes of catastrophic climate change, our destruction of the earth. And we were talking this afternoon that the latest reports saying within 20, 30 years, we will force 40% of all creatures into extinction. Last week, the congressional record reported that over the next 30 years, the United States government has now committed in its budget to spend $1 trillion to upgrade its nuclear weapons and Trident submarines and weapons of mass destruction. This is insanity besides being unacceptable. It's a world of total violence. It's like we're living in some kind of zombie movie or whether we're addicted to violence, but that's, that imagery and that language doesn't even work because it's structured and systemic and institutionalized and it's holy, it's spiritual, it's the will of God. It's perfectly normal, it's totally illegitimate and it's meticulously legal. The first letter Daniel, uh, Thomas Merton wrote to Daniel Barry in 1960, look it up, it's incredible. He says, well, when they finally succeed at killing us and blowing up the planet, it'll be totally illegal. You and I can't stand for this anymore. And we have to stand up publicly. How? Gandhi and King used this clumsy word nonviolence, and I want to reflect with you about it. And just, I keep inviting us to, to ponder, what does it mean? How do you define it? How are you doing on that journey of nonviolence in your life? I always say it begins with the vision of the heart, and that this is the key to the whole spiritual life, or just life, or all organized religion, or theology, or any spirituality. That we're all one. We're all reconciled. Every human being on the planet is your very sister and brother. The gift of peace was given millennia ago. And if you can enter into the spiritual truth of reality of our common unity, my sister, my brother, with every human being, you can never hurt anyone again, or much less kill someone, or be silent and just go about your day-to-day -day when there's 25 wars, 15,000 nuclear weapons, a billion people starving, catastrophic climate change, and the whole litany of violence that you're all resisting. The prisoners here in town, 
to torture, racism, sexism, violence against children. So there's nothing passive about this. This is active love, pursuing the truth of our common unity, reconciling every human being, allowing the God of peace to disarm our hearts of the violence within us, that we can be instruments of God's disarming love. Standing up publicly, like all our heroes, from now on, and saying no, and resisting these structures and institutions of mass murder. Practicing this is so wonderful. Unconditional, non-retaliatory, all-inclusive, all-encompassing, sacrificial, universal love. We get to love everybody with one catch. There is no cause, however noble, for which you and I will ever again support the taking of a single human life. No, no, we just got to kill Hitler or Saddam or Osama. No, that's the boundary line of nonviolence. Nonviolence sets boundaries in this culture of violence that we can then begin to discover what it means to be a human being, that we can discover what it means to love and practice universal love and boundless compassion and the peace of God. But it's in this addiction where you have to say no, and we have to do it as a people. So Gandhi says, we're just beginning to figure it out. And that's why I wrote this book with my friends at Pache Benny, helped me. And here's my take. This is the thesis of the book, The Nonviolent Life. And see what you think about this. I'm not sure you're going to agree with it, but just ponder this one. Nonviolence means three simultaneous attributes in our lives. At the same time, first, real nonviolence to yourself. Really going to make peace with yourself. Cultivate interior nonviolence. Second, at the same time, we're going to practice meticulous interpersonal nonviolence to every human being on the planet and all creatures and all of creation. Third, at the same time, you have to have one foot in the global grassroots movement of nonviolence. Well, I can see that didn't go over too well. (laughs) See, my thought is that we're good at one of those, or maybe two of those, but we don't want to do all three. But Gandhi and Dorothy Day and Dr. King were trying to do all three, and that's what Christ calls us to do in all the world's religions. Like, there's a lot of us, or some of us, a lot of church people who are really nice. <laughs> a nice is not a strong point for me. 32 years of Jesuit education, I better not go there. You know, really peaceful to yourselves and your relatives. And not at all involved in the struggle. That's not the Christian way. It's not nonviolence. On the other hand, there's a lot of us who are really active, really engaged really working for justice and peace. And we're mad and mean for peace. That is not working. You know, we're full of junk and violence, and our relationships are not so good. So let me just say a word about that for a moment. To invite you to reflect, again, where are you in the life of nonviolence? And with your time left, how can you go deeper? Why not? You know, it's not worth for me listening to the media, people, the politicians. Let's take our saints and heroes seriously and go forward. 
And while Father John Deere catches his breath during that presentation he gave in Seattle back in 2014, I'll remind you that you're listening to Spirit in Action, one of two programs we do as part of Northern Spirit Radio. Our website, northernspiritradio.org. Today's show is guest hosted by Brenda Astorino, who broadcasts from Lopez Island, Washington, with her program Pathways on KLOILP. Links to today's guest and hosts, and from all of our 19 years of guests, are on northernspiritradio.org. Visit us, listen to all of our shows, post comments, find where we're broadcasted and podcasted, and make a donation if you'd like to help us be sustainable. Also remember to support with your hands and wallets the 35-plus community radio stations that carry our programs nationwide. They deserve every help you can give them. Right now, I'll return you to the speech by Jesuit peace, justice, and nonviolence activist John Deere, as captured by Brenda Astorino. I got this such a sad letter on Friday from this guy in maximum security prison in Northern California, and he's been reading this book, and he's going, how do I be nonviolent to myself? And then he just starts writing about it. I was beat up as a kid, so I beat up all of everybody else. And then I beat up everybody in the school, and then I joined a gang, and then we went up and beat up everybody, and we started killing people. Now I'm in life in prison, and now I'm beating everybody up in here. And he goes, you know, now that I think about it, it hasn't worked. (laughs) No, it's so touch, it hasn't made me happy. You know, no one has taught him. I mean, we're all victims of wounded people of violence from this culture. And do you want to go forth and be wounded wounders? Or like Henry Nouwen said, be wounded healers. So I like what Thich Nhat Hanh says. Just look deeply within. What's going on inside of you? When you feel that violence, the roots of violence inside you, ponder it. And don't beat yourself up on it. The point is to stop the cycle of violence, which is in each one of us. And to begin to cultivate interior nonviolence. I don't even know if this makes sense. But if you see what I mean, to try to create a space of peace. Actually, what we're talking about are becoming mystics. Only a new kind of dangerous mysticism where your very presence is a threat to empire. To, dare I say, banger. How can you let go of your wounds or, or, or heal your wounds or let go of your hurts and bitterness and resentments and anger and violence in your prayer and meditation with Jesus, with the God of peace, let it go. Give it away. Forgive everyone who ever hurt you every day from now on and receive the resurrection gift of peace. Receive God's gift of peace. Sit in the peace and infinite love of God. And you begin to feel less violent. And cultivate this as a daily practice. Friends, if you're going to continue as activists, which you all are doing great things, I'm sure. And you're going to stand up and speak against the Afghan war or the Trident submarine. And there's a cop there or there's a church person yelling at you. And they're going to come at you like this. You've got to be doing your inner work because theoretically it's going to trigger that stuff from your youth, your violence inside of you. And it's going to, you're going to want to lash out at that person, but it has nothing to do with that person. It's what happened when you were five years old. But if you're processing and constantly working on your inner disarmament and practicing it really strong interior nonviolence, 
my friend, I just gave a retreat last weekend to a large Buddhist gathering with Roshi Joan Halifax, and she calls this strong back, soft front, as opposed to an American, you know, strong front, but actually pretty weak, the back, you know. Uh, we want to be conscious so that when we do step forward publicly, we won't, we, we won't let that trigger the violence within us, the wound, and we can continue to be consciously, mindfully nonviolent. Secondly, we want to practice meticulous interpersonal nonviolence. How are you doing with that? You know, and you think of the difficult people in your life, and unfortunately, they become your teachers because they're exposing your violence. You just show up with somebody and you want to slug them. Well, well, then that's a helpful experience. I'm trying to make you laugh and it's not working. Maybe I triggered some. No, you see what I mean? I think this stuff is really important because we're talking about the world of total war. I mean, if we're not doing this inner work, we have nothing to offer the world. And this is the teaching of all the great peacemakers. And by the way, Jesus. So to reflect, how can you respond nonviolently to people? and to people in your life, so that you can really widen your heart to really practice greater love, compassion, to outdoing one another in kindness, and really working on these smaller moments in the day-to-day so that we can really grow and deepen in our spiritual lives and nonviolence and really be people who have really wide hearts of universal love. That's what we need. And we have to widen this to all creatures from now on and really figure out how can be nonviolent to creatures and all of creation. And um, this is what you're doing, and I want to encourage you at the same time to continue to be part of the global grassroots movement. Things are happening. The world is moving. It's bad, but there's so much good happening. 85 nonviolent revolutions the last 30 years, when you think about it. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the people power movement, the end of apartheid, Lima Gaboe in Liberia. You all know her, I hope. Maybe the greatest living peacemaker. She won the Nobel Peace Prize a couple of years ago. Liberia, Charles Taylor, 200,000 people massacred. She just said, I call upon all the women to dress in white and let's sit down on the streets and say enough is enough. And he just left. You just can't work with these women. <laughs> powerful active nonviolence and getting rid of the dictatorship and ending the war. And they're still at it. There's, that's happening around the planet. At least two-thirds, maybe more of the planet is personally involved in grassroots movements for justice. And you're in Seattle. This is an important place. You can't give up. I know a lot of you are working. Everybody's got to be involved. I love what Romero said. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And uh, if you want to get more information, just look up campaign nonviolence. But I just encourage you to keep at it. This is how change happens through grassroots, bottom-up movement building. And I think Jesus was a nonviolent organizer. He was a movement builder. Gandhi says he was the most active person of nonviolence who ever lived. And then he, or Gandhi goes on to say, and the only people on the whole planet who don't know that Jesus is nonviolent are Christians. And Gandhi says the Sermon on the Mount is the most, it's the greatest teachings of nonviolence in all of human literature. He read the Sermon on the Mount, parts of it, every morning and every evening for the last 45 years of his life. And he's not a Christian. 
He's saying, this is my handbook, how to be a human being in a world of total violence. I invite you to do that. And you read the teachings, and there it is. Blessed are the peacemakers. Offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. Show, be as compassionate as God. Love your neighbor. Love even your enemies. But you could see in Luke chapter 9, he turns and he starts Jesus marching toward Jerusalem. Like Gandhi on the Salt March or Dr. King in Birmingham. He's a movement builder. He sends people ahead of him in pairs to proclaim peace and heal everybody and expel the demons of war and empire and say, We're the reign of God, the new world of nonviolence is coming. It's so spectacular because he he walks into the temple where the religious authorities are working with the empire to oppress all the people and steal their money. And he turns over the tables of the money changers. And he prevents people from coming and going. He does a sit-in. And he's peaceful, non-violent, doesn't hit anybody, hurt anybody, kill anybody, or drop any nuclear bombs. But wow, is he not passive. He's active, public, and daring, troublemaking, and revolutionary. You know, it's illegal activity on behalf of justice in the name of the God of peace. I've come to the conclusion that everything Jesus did was illegal. It was a one-man crime way of walking through the Roman Empire. So I was talking about this, and forgive me if you heard these before. This is, the, I still think, the best I can share with you. And uh, when the war in Iraq started again in 2003, I was speaking to a church, and this woman raised her hand, and she said, you know, I just think this is the most beautiful stuff. Nonviolence, that's so interesting to think about. And me, personally, me, I'm a big fan of peace. But sometimes you just got to kill somebody. In New Mexico, everybody talks like that. You know, and she said, the church is right to throw out the Sermon on the Mount. In the year 315, when Constantine theoretically became Christian and said, you can all kill now and join this army, support the empire. And he turned to Cicero, the pagan, to begin to come up with a just war theory. Then ended up having the seven conditions, and now you can bomb everybody for Jesus and crusades. It's all Christians building the nuclear weapons at Los Alamos. And I said to her, and I invite you to think about this for those of you who are Christian. What happens next in the story? Uh, you know, he's in the upper room the Passover meal, he takes the bread and the cup, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. If he were a good American, he would say, go break their bodies for me. Go shed their blood for me. No, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. Do this. That's the art of nonviolence, the willingness to give our lives for suffering humanity. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here come the horrible soldiers to arrest him. Peter's thinking, oh my God, our guy's in trouble. I'm supposed to be the number one in charge. i got to protect him. And he gets a sword to kill because he's thinking, if there's ever a just war in all of human history, if violence is ever divinely sanctioned in all of human history, if there was ever a moment to kill, this is it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's right. We got to kill to protect our guy. And just as he goes to kill to save Jesus, the commandment comes down. Put 
down the sword. Friends, those are the last words of Jesus to the church. It's the last thing he said to the men and women, his friends around him. And it's the first time they understood who he is. Peter's going, oh my God, this hippie is so into agape, peace, and nonviolence. He's not going to defend himself violently, which means we don't get to defend ourselves violently, which means we're out of here. And they all abandon him and go, I always say, go read Gandhi. Gandhi's the greatest Christian theologian, as Martin Luther King said. Jesus goes deeper into because he's working every moment for Jesus is like civil disobedience, in your face, violence. There's no anger, no resentment, no retaliation. Violence stops here in my body. You're all forgiven. The days of killing are over. And God raised from the dead and he says, peace be with you now. You walk the road with nonviolence. This is what you and I are trying to do. To be people of active, daring, gospel nonviolence in a world now of total violence. This is the greatest thing we can do with our lives. This is the great hope of the world. Gandhi and King and Dorothy Day were right. For us, especially as Christians, this is the way we can follow Jesus. To be meticulously nonviolent to ourselves. Nonviolence in all our relationships, to all creatures, on all of creation. And to be part of building a new movement to be heralding a new world without war and poverty and violence, to welcome God's reign of peace and nonviolence, to fulfill your vocations, to be who you already are in the eyes of the God of peace, peacemakers, the beloved daughters and sons of the God of peace. Thanks very much for listening to me, everybody. Brief question. I couldn't help but wonder uh, regarding your second category of our relationships with other people and other parts of creation. Are you a vegetarian or what do you say about eating meat? Thank you. I, I, you know, you read Gandhi and he started out that way. What happened to me was in 1982 when I came back from Israel a week later, I was grappling with this. I was reading all these books, and one of them was Francis Moore LaPay's Diet for a Small Planet, one of the most important books. And she says, do it for human beings. Well, that's shocking. You know, do we eat animals? We kill and torture animals? How, how could that be? Gandhi said, the measure of your humanity is the way you treat animals. It's a powerful statement. She said, though, in Brazil... All the grain that's going growing there with people starving is being shipped to the United States to feed the cattle for McDonald's. Therefore, don't eat meat to help end world hunger. And now the United Nations says, forget that. It has to do with the environment. It's all about saving. So it's all one. So I became a vegetarian in 1982. Uh, yes, uh, based on what you said earlier, you know, nice doesn't quite cut it. you got to be active. So I, but my question is a question that is, is I've been asking and exploring for 30 years. Uh, and it's a great mystery, but I'm looking for a definitive answer. So I hope you can do that tonight. All right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, and Jesus, you know, uh, the military leader who comes up to him who has his ill servant. Yeah. So he's participating in the oppression of the Jews. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's ready to kill any numbers of people who rebel. Right. And Jesus said, 
here's the, there's no faith like this in uh, in Israel. Yeah, you know, this. I just want your reflections on that. This is great. Was Gandhi right or not? You know, was Jesus violent or nonviolent? I, I sometimes think, well, if he's violent, the heck with him. If Gandhi's right and Dr. King is right, now we're getting somewhere. We're just inventing theology and spirituality of nonviolence, which is just a clumsy word for love and peace and compassion, but it means no killing and all. It's so darn exciting, and I keep investigating it, and with some friends who are here tonight, we keep talking about it. But this is good. I love your question, and I invite you to keep going back to the stories. My text and my advice is just read the four Gospels for the next 30 years and then get back to me. It's the most profound story of nonviolence in all of human writing. The disciples come and say, this guy, the Roman, he built the synagogue. He's really rich. He's really nice. And his son is, or his servant is ill, and you should help him. You really should do this. And Jesus is like, okay, we'll do it. And he goes there and word comes, you know, I'm a military person, I give the word and it's done. You're not worthy to have you under my house. Just say the word and the servant will be healed. And Jesus turns and said, I've never encountered this faith in all of Israel. Now, those of you who are scripture scholars know more about this for me. He doesn't say, therefore, I was completely wrong. The Roman Empire is great. And let's all be good Roman citizens which is what I hear a lot of people saying from this one story, just saying the guy has faith and he cured the servant's uh, illness. And then he was executed by the Roman Empire. You know, he was surrounded by 600 drunken Roman soldiers, the whole cohort. You know, when after he was arrested and tried, remember they mocked him and put the purple robe on him. That's what empire does. Tortures and executes activists to make sure you, the rest of you don't get involved in this. And Jesus is misunderstood as a violent revolutionary. He did the right thing. He was affirming faith. Faith is really the heart of everything for Jesus, and we don't know what he's talking about. Do you really believe in God or not? Do you really believe in Jesus or not? If you really believe in God, what are we afraid of? Let's go do great miracles and change the world as instruments of God. You can do it. We have Gandhi shows that. Um, but he never supported Rome or the Roman Empire or the oppression and the killing that was happening throughout the outskirts of the empire in Palestine and Galilee. I don't see any of that, and I think that story is misused a lot. That's my humble take on it. I invite you to wrestle with it, too. Thanks. I don't want to embarrass you, but I was Jesuitical since first grade when I put AMDG in my papers through a Jesuit university and our Jesuit pastor this minute who says hello to you and likes you. But I would like to know, after St. Ignatius's order for four centuries have done so much good, how your provincial in Baltimore could kick you out and that the current pope in Rome or the Vatican yeah. could kick you out. I, it's, to me, a mystery of all mysteries. These are deep mysteries. Um, <laughs> Jesuit mysteries. No, thank you. Well, first of all, I left. 
So I was a Jesuit for 32 years, and some of you know this and some of you don't, and I'm talking about it. I've gone public with the, every provincial I had, except for maybe one, just that 30 people has been trying to get rid of me for 32 years. From the week I entered, they were on to me. And uh, it's so, this, I, I, I hesitate to talk about it because it's too painful. It's not funny what I'm sharing with you, so I ask you to respect me. This is a very personal journey, community I love. The martyrs I knew, my teacher, Daniel Berrigan, were all suffering through what's happened to me and to, and to others. Uh, and I can let other Jesuits speak for themselves. I'll just say, that's my history, which you wouldn't believe. I've written it up and people didn't believe it. My friends read it. And I never talked about it publicly, the, thing, like, the things that happened to me. You wouldn't believe it. Uh, but in these last 10 years, as I've spoken to a lot of people around the country and around the world, you know, I'm uh, banned and kicked out of 100 dioceses or 200 by many, many bishops. So they're inundating my provincial and other provincials with complaints because of the scandal that I'm against war. And um, so what happened was I was working in New Mexico having these peace vigils at Los Alamos, and the archbishop removed my priestly faculties because I was having sackcloth and ashes peace vigils there which were getting enormous publicity in the state and he was he could have lost millions of dollars you know because the priest is up there saying you can't be christian and work at los alamos by the way i went in to meet him and he said yeah we need nuclear weapons i said the church is actually against nuclear weapons archbishop it's actually pretty clear i think no no there are only security I said, no, actually, in the Psalms, it says God is our security. No, God can't protect us. I almost said to him, being a smart aleck, okay, you don't believe in God. Yeah, I didn't say that. And, and I said, well, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. And you and I have to help the 20,000 Christians at Los Alamos not be spending their lives preparing to vaporize people. No, you don't have to do what Jesus said. Yeah, and that was a real life-changing moment for me. I got kicked out. The provincial boarded me to Baltimore, where the headquarters is. I'm not allowed anywhere else on the whole planet, he said. I was not given an assignment. I was basically put under house arrest, which is an old Jesuit thing. No, seriously, they used to have prisons in the old days, you know. You know, he said to me, you know, as I heard every year, why are you in the order? You know, nobody supports you. Why don't you leave? He said to me, you will leave after three years, so why don't you just leave now? And it's so people say, but your vow of obedience. Well, it's weird when you have your superior saying, leave under obedience. And he can't get rid of me because I'm an elder in the order with final vows. I'm a priest in good standing, but it was affecting my health. And I thought, this is it. What, what should I do? And then it wasn't a choice for me. And so I moved out of Baltimore. And was later dismissed. So it was my choice to leave. And I'm hoping to stay a priest. And I'm working with a bishop in California at the moment who wants me to continue my work. So please keep me in your prayers and the society that we can all live up to these questions about what does it mean to follow Jesus? A new world of nonviolence is coming. Uh, to translate that into old, the ancient Koine Greek, the reign of God is at hand. 
This is what we are doing. We have to help people in Seattle reclaim your imagination or talk about a day when there is no more Trident submarine base. You know, and people wouldn't have to be fasting and protest at the prison and all the other injustices going on in Seattle and Washington. A new kind of nonviolent Seattle, but a nonviolent nation and a nonviolent world. This is, and it will only happen through grassroots movement building, which is why I support World Beyond War and Campaign Nonviolence and all your own projects. I just encourage you. This reminds me of Howard Zinn, the great historian, the author of A People's History of the United States. And uh, he was in Santa Fe shortly before he died, and he was saying, You think of it, the abolitionists, the suffragists, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, he says to me, they all have one thing in common. From the beginning, the middle, to the very end, they were all hopeless. <laughs> and then there was a breakthrough. And Howardson said, why? We know now historically in our own national history, the great Howardson said, because in every movement, the abolitionists, the suffragists, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, ordinary people, did one or two or three things for their cause, for the struggle for justice and peace, every single day, even though they knew they weren't going to live to see the victory they were giving their lives for. They kept at it anyway. That's when nonviolence is contagious, and it's going to work. It's the power of God. That's why you and I have to keep at this, and why it's good to reflect on the abolitionists and this history. And I'm very interested in what those British people did. It's so astonishing and i could talk much more about this the one thing in the four gospels that's repeated the most is do not be afraid do not be afraid do not be afraid and what if we just said okay i'll take him at his word Thanks, Mark, for letting me share. Find more on John Deere at BeatitudeCenter.org or PathJBenny.org. Back to you, Mark. Thanks, Brenda, for acting as Spirit in Action guest host today and sharing those stirring words from John Deere. We'll look forward to more in three months. I'll be hosting next week with my interviews conducted in early July while I was at the National Friends General Conference gathering held in Monmouth, Oregon. See you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our healing.